You're listening to the Do Justice Podcast, exploring faith, meeting the world, from Shining Waters Regional Council of the United Church of Canada. some familiar music. Hello, and welcome to the Do Justice podcast for Friday, November 13th. My name is Brianne Swan, and I am Minister for Social and Ecological Justice at Shining Waters Regional Council. I am recording this podcast from my office in what is now known as Toronto, Ontario, the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee Anishinaabek, the Seneca, Patoon First Nations, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. After about 10 months away, this is the first episode of what has been known as the Living Presence podcast. Living Presence Ministry was a United Church community ministry in East Gwillimbury until this spring. Living Presence has ceased its operations in York Region, and I have moved to my current position with Shining Waters Regional Council. If you were a subscriber to the Living Presence podcast, I am so glad to be with you again. And if this is your first week joining in, welcome. I am so glad that you are here. So, the Do Justice podcast why is it called Do Justice? It's called Do Justice because of Lois Wilson. Lois Wilson is a United Church minister, the first female moderator of the United Church, former president of the Canadian Council of Churches, former president of the World Council of Churches, former Canadian senator, companion to the Order of Canada, and all around justice-focused spiritual badass. Around 10 years ago, my husband and I were sitting in Metropolitan United Church witnessing Lois receive the Heart and Vision Award for her years of dedication to the church and the world. She prepped those of us present that she was going to have us sing a hymn based on Micah 6-8. What does the Lord require of you? Except She didn't want us to sing about how we wanted to seek justice. She wanted us to do justice. That justice isn't simply something we look for, like it's hiding under a pillow or something. Justice is an action, something that is done, something we can and should be doing in our everyday lives. So we were to sing about how we were going to do justice. And sing we did. We sang for her, and she told us that we sounded like a dog's breakfast. I really, really hope I can get away with being that snarky when I'm in my mid-80s. But the idea of doing justice has stayed with me. And it has become the umbrella for much of the justice-related content from Shining Waters over the past few months. So, welcome 
to Do Justice, the podcast. It will be similar in format to the Living Presence podcast, but with the addition of occasional co-hosts and guests. We will still have music and reflection and prayers. We will still have scripture being read out in the world. And we hope that we will have you, whether you are part of the United Church, another denomination, are unchurched, dechurched, seeking or wondering. I am so glad that you are listening. On today's episode, we'll be talking about talents. Not talents like juggling or ventriloquism, but talents as in finances and resources. We'll be looking at power and scapegoating, being brave, and sometimes standing alone. We'll hear music from Toronto singer-songwriter Shauna Caspi, but first, here is American artist Imori with their song Nightingale. You can find links to Imori's music by going to our show notes at shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca slash justice.
My name is Reverend Jason Myers and I'm sitting on the steps of Metropolitan United Church in downtown Toronto. This is a place of crossroads. We are equally distant from the tents of the encampments of Moss Park to the great Towers of Commerce on Bay Street. And it is from this place of crossroads that I read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 25 verses 14 to 30. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. The one who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them, and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one who had the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave. 
You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him, and give it to the one with the ten talents. For all who have, more will be given, and they will have with abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So a couple of things before we get into the meat of this parable. Words like master and slave can feel stirring. If the words feel uncomfortable, and I admit they do for me, I invite you to sit gently with that discomfort. The reasons for discomfort will be different for different people. And together we can mull over what it means that our sacred texts contain such words and that Christians have been using these words and references for a long, long time. It is a large topic which we will dig into another time, but for now, I invite you to simply sit with that discomfort. I will place some links in the show notes for further reading and information about slave and master relationships in the agrarian context of Jesus's time. It's not exactly the master and slave, or more accurately, enslaver and enslaved relationship that we often think about in a North American context, but it is still a relationship of stark inequity. So here we have the master, the head of a wealthy household. But how wealthy is wealthy? And another related question, exactly how much is a talent worth? Well, my friends, a talent is about the equivalent of 20 years of wages for a field laborer in Jesus's time. So at $15 an hour, which is slightly more than minimum wage in Ontario, 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year times 20 years, we can imagine a talent being comparable to about $600,000 in today's money. Which means slave number one has been entrusted with the equivalent of about $3 million dollars. Slave two has been entrusted with 1.2 million, and the last slave, 600,000. They are entrusted with these funds, each according to their ability, that is, each according to their position of influence and power. This is not a test. These men would have already proven themselves competent and capable if they had been entrusted with such vast financial portfolios. Despite the inequality that existed between themselves and the master, they would certainly have had more power than, say, the guys working in the fields. Now, the thing about parables 
There are many different ways of interpreting them, experimenting with them, playing with them. And so I invite you to play time with me as we work through this jarring piece of scripture. Maybe you noticed too, but everything seems to work out pretty well for the first two men. They take the master's money, go out into the world with it, we don't really know for how long, and manage to double the master's wealth. That is some pretty outstanding return on investment. Not as good as investing in Zoom eight months ago, but still pretty fantastic. Speaking of the world eight months ago, in the early days of this pandemic, when everything was closed down and we soon realized that school wasn't going to be back anytime soon, my sons, who were eight and five years old at the time, started looking for projects to keep themselves occupied. So they created a small video series called The Lockdown Brothers, where they reenacted stories from the Bible with their dog, Dobby. This week, they reenacted this parable, the parable of the talents. Now, before we film, we always have a conversation about the story and what they think it's all about. The major question each son had for this week was, how do you get money from money? Now, I'm a minister. I'm not a financial advisor, so I'm probably not the most qualified person to answer this, but... I think their point is pretty solid. How do you make money just from having money? The answer in this instance, quite possibly, perhaps even likely, is not without some form of exploitation. Perhaps from buying up all the available grain and then selling it back to citizens at exorbitantly inflated prices. Perhaps with a debilitating high-interest payday loan. Perhaps by purchasing the patent to a drug called Daraprim and then turning around and overnight charging HIV and toxoplasmosis patients 5,000 times its original price. However, these two slaves have done exactly what they've been tasked with doing, and they have done it well. As a reward, they enter into their master's joy. This is no surprise. Powerful people often expect those who answer to them to follow their instructions. He invites the two slaves into his confidence. With increased proximity and access to his power, thereby increasing their own power within their community. But then the third slave... The third slave comes back with only the money the master entrusted to him, saying, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours." 
Of course, we know what comes next. It's at this point, the master goes absolutely berserk. He loses it, calls the man wicked and lazy, demonizes him, presumably in front of the other slaves. He sets an example to the others of what happens when corrupt power is called out and sends him to the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In fact, the master reacts exactly as the third man predicts. The third man accuses the master of gathering and reaping that which does not belong to him, that which he is not entitled to. How would he know this unless he has seen the master in action? Now, I'm not saying this is the only way to look at this parable, because we're playing here, right? But what if, what if it's not that the third employee is unfaithful and lazy? What if the issue is, as American theologian William Herzog suggests, that the third slave is refusing to be complicit, refusing to buy into the exploitive system? The other two slaves, they have been complicit. They have sought to enhance their own social station, their own proximity to power by going along with the instructions of the master. The master has sought to enhance his already vast amount of wealth. The other slaves do the work of their corrupt and harsh master, and they are rewarded. Remember, the slaves were given talents in proportion to their status. The higher up you are, the harder it is to call out and get out. But still, no matter how high they are able to get, at the end of this day, they are still slaves. When I approach scripture, especially challenging scripture, I often ask myself, who is the most vulnerable person in this story? And then, what if I just believed them? So who is the most vulnerable person here? Probably the dude who's been cast into the outer darkness with the weeping and the gnashing, right? So what would it mean if we just believed him? What if we believed that the master is as corrupt as the third employee says he is? How does that change the story? And how does that change what we're supposed to take away from the story? What if this is a story not about what was going to happen, but about what was already happening? What if this is not a warning about what is to come, but a warning about what is already here? Let's look at what's going on in the United States right now. It's certainly not that Donald Trump holds a monopoly on deceit and corruption. But after a heated election and the president refusing, absolutely refusing to concede you will notice who the people are who are remaining clung to him. 
Rudy Giuliani, his children, those who have worked closest to him, who have been the most complicit, who have benefited the most from their proximity to his power. And what has happened to those who have refused to play along in the past, who have attempted to shine attention onto his lies, endorsement of violence and evasion of responsibility, they have been villainized and demonized. Their abilities have been questioned, they have been scapegoated, and they have been cast out. Now, this is an extreme and very public example, but it happens all over and all the time, over and over and over again. What happens to the whistleblowers? Those in power try to discredit them, to cast them into the darkness. But guess what? The darkness is one of the holiest of places. Darkness has been there with God since the very beginning. It was there in the first moments of creation. The Israelites made their escape from Egypt within the safety of the darkness. It is in the dark that Samuel receives his call. And as we move closer into the Advent season, we wait for a baby born in the darkness to a young woman who upon learning of her pregnancy recites a defiant manifesto against the forces of exploitive power and their enablers. And this baby grows. He grows to be a man who ends up sitting with those who have been cast to the outer darkness over and over again. From the beginning, from the Hebrew scriptures to the Greek scriptures to now, we find God in the darkness. The darkness is the birthplace of good things. And I hope that knowing God is in the darkness might give me the strength I need when times inevitably emerge that require calling out the master. I also hope knowing God is in the darkness reminds me to always ask the questions, who is the most vulnerable in this story? And what if I just believed them? Because God is present when we are brave. God is present in the darkness. If we find ourselves pushed into the darkness, we will find each other. And as we'll hear in a moment from Shauna Caspi, we don't have to be afraid of marching in this brave parade. It's okay, I'm not afraid 
Marching in this brave parade With all the souls who crawled back up Who bet despite their crazy luck Who choose to love in an angry age Refuse to bend despite or rage Who aren't afraid of bad reviews And don't care if they win or lose Who know that all the money's probably spent Every deadline came and went Know the love is not a game And life is equal joy and pain Love moonlight across the bed Question every word that's said Celebrate every victory And aren't afraid of mystery Who aren't afraid of leaving town Giving up and falling down Throwing everything to chance And fighting for a new romance Look between the skin and bones Long for comfort, ache for home Love the poets in the sky The drifters and the ones who cry So here's a toast to the underdog That was Shauna Caspi singing Lynn Miles' song, Brave Parade. Brave Parade can be found on Shauna's 2017 album, Forest Fire. You can find Shauna, as well as links to purchasing her music and artwork, by going to www.shaunacaspi.com. An excerpt. From the United Church of Canada's Song of Faith. We sing of a church seeking to continue the story of Jesus by embodying Christ's presence in the world. We are called together by Christ as a community of broken but hopeful believers, loving what he loved, living 
what he taught. Striving to be faithful servants of God in our time and place. Our ancestors in faith bequeath to us experiences of their faithful living. Upon their lives, our lives are built. Our living of the gospel makes us a part of this communion of saints, experiencing the fulfillment of God's reign, even as we actively anticipate a new heaven and a new earth. The church has not always lived up to its vision. It requires the spirit to reorient it, helping it to live an emerging faith while honoring tradition, challenging it to live by grace rather than entitlement, for we are called to be a blessing to the earth. We sing of God's good news lived out, a church with purpose. Faith nurtured and hearts comforted, gifts shared for the good of all, resistance to the forces that exploit and marginalize, fierce love in the face of violence, human dignity defended, members of a community held and inspired by God, corrected and comforted, instrument of the loving spirit of Christ, creation's mending. We sing of God's mission. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with Jeffrey Dale, Shining Waters Regional Council's Minister for Faith Formation, Youth and Young Adults. We'll be talking about Christ the King Sunday, wondering what it means to talk about Jesus in terms related to empire. But until then, take care of yourselves your neighbors as yourselves, remembering always that we are all neighbors. Deep peace to all of you. Have a great week. This podcast is brought to you by Shining Waters Regional Council, an administrative grouping within the United Church of Canada. You can find us online at www.shiningwatersregionalcouncil.ca